Hello, Bonsai friends. This is Evan of Underhill Bonsai, and welcome to episode 17 of Little Things for Bonsai People podcast, uh, formerly Bonsai Southeast. And uh, today I am joined by Mike Lane of Kitsune Bonsai. How are you doing today, Mike? Good, good. How are you guys? Awesome, awesome. Um, and then Unfortunately, Carmen couldn't join us today, but we'll catch up with her on a later episode. She's busy in the Boneside Garden with uh, with Michael. So today we're going to have a very special episode. We have a guest with us. We have Mr. David DeGroot. He's going to be t- uh, talking to us about uh, Boneside curation, how he got into Boneside, uh, and all, everything that he loves about Boneside. So we're looking forward to talking to him today. But before we get started, I do need to mention that our podcast is sponsored by Underhill Bonsai, Louisiana's premier, premier bonsai nursery. Uh, if you'd like to support our show, you can follow, like, subscribe on our social media accounts as followed. For Underhill, we have a, a Facebook and Instagram. You can also go to our website and sign up at underhillbonsai.com for our newsletter. For Mike, it's Kesune Bonsai. He has a Facebook and an Instagram under the same name. Mike also has uh, merch available on his website, kitsunebonsai.com. And uh, that class that's coming up, that's still, uh, what, what was the date on that, Mike? That'll be this this Saturday. We have a, uh, a Zoom class, beginner Zoom class, basically just going over the fundamentals. Uh, a lot of the fundamentals that are probably our guest uh, speaker wrote. And so we'll be going over a lot of those fundamentals. Uh, uh, for a $20 fee, it'll just be a, about a three hour Zoom class. So grab a cup of coffee, you know, and uh, and join mm-hmm. us for a nice morning. Yeah, you don't even need a computer. You can just have a cell phone to attend that. That's uh, it's only $20. So you'll be uh, sitting on the beach. <laughs> you can blur the background. Nobody needs to know where you're at. Um, and for Carmen, uh, you can follow her uh, Instagram, which is going to be Becoming Bonsai. And then she's also the co-founder of Purple Pot Society. So you can go to purplepotsociety.org for more information. You become you can become a member. Uh, it's not gender specific. You can be any gender and uh, support the National Women's Bonsai Club. Uh, we do have a new Patreon. I need to do a shout out for today. Um, we have Vicky Off. Thank you so much for becoming a Bonsai Bud and supporting our show. You are awesome. Anyone else that's interested in supporting us financially, go over to Patreon forward slash little things for Boneside people and become a Boneside bud for $1. Just that $1 goes a long way. Yeah, I actually uh, know Vicky. Hi, Vicky. <laughs> awesome. Awesome. I'm glad she's uh, somebody that you are that you work with and you know in Boneside. Um, and then uh, the, the podcast has merch now. So we have a few t-shirts, t-shirt designs that are going to be available on Mike's website for now until we can find another way to kind of switch over and get a website for the podcast up and going. But we have designs for uh, little things for Boneside People t-shirts with our logo and featured designs from graphic designers and other artist friends of ours. You can go check those out over at kitsuneboneside.com. So let's go ahead and uh, start talking about our guest. Uh, so I'm going to introduce Mr. David DeGroote. Uh, he's former curator of the Pacific Bonsai Museum or the Pacific Rim uh, Bonsai Collection uh, in Federal Way, Washington. And he's also a former percussionist of the New Orleans Symphony Symphony Orchestra. Sorry, Uh, that kind of hits home a little bit because I'm in Louisiana and very familiar with New Orleans. 
Uh, he is also the author of an amazing and very informative book titled Principles of Boneside Design, which has also gotten a reprint. You can go pick it up at stonelantern.com and uh, we can see what other places would be available as well. But that's where I've seen it currently. Uh, and Mr. DeGroote is also very active in Boneside. You can see him judging shows, judging at shows, or uh, giving Boneside demonstrations and conducting workshops around the U.S., so uh, I've seen a good bit of his work on Facebook, and I was wondering where else can people see examples of your work, Mr. DeGroote? Uh, well, I think uh, Dave suits me well. I, uh, <laughs> Mr. DeGroote, Mr. DeGroote was my dad. and um, <laughs> You got it, Dave. So anyway. Yeah. Uh, I was just being very thank, formal. <laughs> thank, you, thank you for being so courteous. That's, that's, that's <laughs> Southern courtesy that I'm hearing, and I appreciate it. Um, uh, yeah, so basically I'm because I'm not into merchandising and I'm not into any kind of I don't have anything to sell. Um, it's just um, I teach, basically. And so I don't even actually sell my own books. So in other words, you can get them from me. You can get them from Stone Lantern. Uh, so my my career after leaving the Pacific Bonesome Museum uh, is solely in education, is solely in teaching. And so mm -hmm. you can find me basically on Facebook. <laughs> yeah. There's a lot of great uh, stuff that you've posted on there. A lot of your awesome trees in your personal collection, uh, things that you've been doing uh, with demonstrations and instruction. Where do you instruct at? Uh, where are you spending, spending a lot of your time doing that? Well, okay, so I, I do some traveling. And um, for instance, I've I, I locally... I do uh, a number of local bonsai clubs, uh, not on a regular basis, but they are kind of as invited. And so that's uh, Puget Sound Bonsai Association is is one. Uh, the Olympia Bonsai Club, Olympia is not too far away from here. And um, I I've also I'll be going down to California later this year. I'll be going to um, uh, actually going to New Zealand. Uh, later this year, wow, that's a couple cool. months. Mm -hmm. that's awesome. And um, I've been to China three times giving demonstrations there. I'll be in uh, in Canada in Winnipeg later this year uh, for demonstrations. So, in other words, I I I do some traveling, and <laughs> um, I I really like working on my trees. That's fun. I have friends who come over and and work with me. And I really enjoy that a lot. I, I do some classes at um, Asia Pacific Gardening, which is a, a local uh, import, a Chinese import uh, place. And um, they offer regular classes for beginners. And then I do occasional classes for not beginners. <laughs> and mm -hmm. uh, so anyway, there are a few outlets. But um, I've been uh, retired from the Pacific Bonsai Museum now for eight years. And mm -hmm. so I'm doing what I like, which is working on my trees and <laughs> doing some teaching. Yeah, and of, course. of course, putting out the, the second edition of my book, which was a lot of fun. Awesome. So what what, David, is your favorite aspect of bonsai to teach? Well, the favorite aspect is is basically design. design. <laughs> My book is on design. And I like to approach it not from the angle of my teacher told me to do this. 
Uh, but because I've had 50 years of experience in bonsai and and been with various teachers and so forth um, and and have a lot of my own experience, I like to approach it as as simply as art. Uh, you know, you could be doing a painting, you could be doing a sculpture with with stone or metal or whatever. And for bonsai, the same kind of conditions apply, the same kind of principles apply. And so that's why in my book, I focus on it's called principles of bonsai design. Mm -hmm. And I use three uh, principles of art. And if you look in various art textbooks, you'll find anywhere between seven or 10 principles. And um, principles are like, uh, I don't, they're not, they're not rules because in bonsai, there's, there's so much uh, concern <laughs> about yeah. terms we use. Okay. Mm -hmm. Not so much today as, as in earlier years, but there was this whole thing about, about rules. And, I, and my comment has always been uh, rules in art are descriptions of common practice. Right. They're they're not legislation. They're not, you know, uh, nobody's <laughs> nobody cares about that. But but for instance, um I I focus on things like uh proportion, balance, and harmony in the design and I think those three elements or principles can be extracted from from all the other principles that our text writers use because many of the principles in our textbooks are repetitive or mm -hmm. they overlap. And I've distilled it down to these three. Nice. And so that's how I like to approach bonsai. And that's how I like to approach if I'm judging uh, an exhibit, for instance, that's how I want to approach it. Um, and then layered on those three principles are what I call the three biases. And the three biases are cultural. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, you know, what comes from the culture? Is it uh, Japanese style? Is it Chinese style? Did it come from that culture? Is is it, um, you know, color, the style has to do with, with everything from, uh, or I should not say, I shouldn't call it style. That's a wrong thing to say. Um, I I should really uh, say that it's it's part of the, the, uh, culture from which it came the, it really culture is a better word than style so that has to do with architecture of a of a of an area it has to do with uh, clothing language art mm. so on so the cultural bias um is a, is something that gets layered on top of those three artistic principles the universals and then on top of that you get what i call uh, fashion that's temporary mm -hmm. and oh, that yeah. has to do with i want to be in group I want to be doing what I see my colleagues doing and showing that I, you know, am part of uh, of this group or this generation or that mm -hmm. I'm in the know and so on. So I, I want to be in fashion. And then the last bias is the personal bias. It's like my personal taste. You know, you like green, I like red. Um, and not one is right or wrong. It's just that we have different things that are our priorities. And so I use those three principles and three biases uh, when I talk about bonsai always. And, and you can just use that anywhere. I love it. Um, could I ask one question is what is the what is probably and it's a hard question to ask. What do you think are some of the things that are currently in fashion right now in bonsai that you see? 
Well, uh, the thing that is is uh, very much in fashion right now is the extended branch. Mm-hmm. So in other words, one long branch, uh, the first branch typically that's on the same side as the lean, uh, mm-hmm. that's something that is not, if you would go back uh, 20, 30 years, uh, you would you would have a counterbalancing branch. In other words, the the main lowest branch would be on the side of the tree opposite the lean. Mm-hmm. And what that does is it affects the balance. So in one case, I say that when it's opposite the lean, it tends to stabilize the composition. And so that's stable balance. When it's in the direction of the lean, it's not so stable, it's more directional, and therefore I would I would call that it's more of a dynamic balance. And in some cases, it also requires the container. Um, mm-hmm. uh, it's not just the tree in itself that's balancing, but uh, certainly the visual mass of the container comes into play. Right. And also, I guess the positioning of that elongated branch, whether that's going to go over the negative space and so on. Yeah, absolutely. And um, and of course, the other thing is now, um, since importing trees became so hard uh, about, oh, what is it now, between 15, 20 years ago when a lot of the rules were changed, um, that that we, we turned to starting to use our native trees. And of course, uh, especially here in the West, uh, the use of native trees almost always involves um, specimens that are taken from the dry side of the mountains, mm-hmm. uh, specimens that have been naturally dwarfed and have been exposed to extremes of natural conditions. And so deadwood, uh, especially with the junipers that are very popular, a deadwood as a feature, as an important feature, is is very typical now of mm-hmm. of what I see as being popular in bonsai. That's interesting. Very yeah, good. we had we had talked about doing uh, Yamadori in a very uh, very soon to come episode, and we did touch on deadwood quality and stuff like that. We're seeing a lot more deadwood, and especially in the U.S. right now, uh, with all the collecting in the Cascades and the Rocky Mountains and all that. Um, we're seeing some really awesome Rocky Mountain junipers and and other high quality, like the one seed junipers, some really high quality stuff coming out. So yeah, can definitely see well, that coming in. You see it in Europe too. They're mm-hmm. they're collecting, uh, you know, out of the Alps, oh. and you see a tremendous amount of of uh, pr- tremendous number of trees uh, with the native pines and junipers uh, oh. that are that are uh, have have significant amounts of deadwood on them. Even some of the uh, a lot of the olives I see that, you know, they're doing in Italy and whatnot are, you know, hundreds plus year old trees that they're digging up with very, very cool, um, old, long lasting deadwood. So, yeah. And in China for for many years, uh, they have been using deadwood as significant elements, sometimes uh, not so much protruding branches, gin branches, that sort of thing, so much as um not holes, holes right. in wood and and hollowed out trunks, uh, decaying trunks. Um, I have a Chinese elm that I've been working on for a number of years that I, I carve deeply into it to make deep knot holes in it and deliberately have never tried to preserve anything because my idea is to let it go ahead and rot out uh, because that's, again, the uh, the, the concept of, of trying to project the image of age. 
Right. That's uh, that's interesting. So one of the things I do, David, and uh, I'm hoping you're in a similar mindset, sounds like you are, is I tend to grow things. Uh, I don't just grow things by the Japanese paradigm. I like to learn about the Chinese way of growing things. And I like to grow certain trees under certain paradigms. And I like to explore different cultural outlooks in bonsai. So mm-hmm. like one of the things that I'm, I'm dying to ask you about is your right angle tree. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that 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 was that was a a sort of an accident. Um, So I uh, when I bought that tree, it it was in a sales lot at a nursery. I was returning from Portland and stopped at a nursery and uh, they had a bunch of uh, hinoki in in kind of roped off and they were bald and burlapped and then stuck in big nursery containers. And I could see a tiny bit of the bottom of the trunk. The, this thing was thickly foliated. I could see a tiny bit of the bottom of the trunk, and it appeared to be straight. And I thought, well, you know what? It's a nice, it's a substantial size tree. Uh, it looks like it has a nice, I don't really have any significant formal upright trees in my collection. And um, this is going to be my formal upright. Uh, and, and then I took it home and I started taking the burlap off and, and discovered that, oh, the trunk keeps going and it's not straight anymore. <laughs> we so often learn when we get a tree and start digging into the container. Yeah. So so there there goes that out the window. So it wasn't going to be a formal upright from, from that perspective. And then as I started removing branches, I discovered a, a, a right total right angle bend. Somebody had just lopped the trunk off at one time and a horizontal branch had taken over. And as it grew out to the side, apparently in the nursery, they decided, well, they didn't want that either. So they lopped that horizontal branch off and let it start growing up. And so when I bought the tree, there were two right angles in it. And I it sat in my driveway for a couple of months while I tried to decide what to do with it. And um, finally, I because I've made several trips over to China and I've I've seen uh, some very large exhibits and so forth. And I I'd seen right angle uh, bonsai in which right angles are used. They're called square turn style. And right. typically, you don't see that throughout the tree. You'll see that on a, on a couple uh, primary branches, but but it's not repeated endlessly. As, but anyway, I I uh, looked at this thing, and I've always been of the opinion that since bonsai are abstract compositions anyway, there'd be no harm in carrying that out to be fully abstract. So no. I, mm-hmm. I took. What the tree gave me, I took what I had seen in China, and I took the idea of extending the concept of abstraction. I put them all together and uh, came up with that. <laughs> I love it. I love it. No, it's a, uh, it's, it's that's really cool because I think it's a, a useful technique to kind of, like you said, pull from all these different elements. Like to me, it being too rigid limits your toolkit. You yeah. Know, so it, it limits your toolkit. And when you're approached with something like a right angle tree, a lot of people who are too rigid might give up on it or trade it out or something like that. So I yeah. think that's really yeah. cool. Yeah. Well, thank you. Yeah. I'm going to have to uh, use the image of the right angle tree as either the, the, the cover thumbnail. For this, 
the yeah. thumbnail of this episode so everybody can see it. Um, but you can go back on uh, uh, Dave's Facebook a little ways. I, it was displayed. Or, you at, know, um, excuse me, um, uh, Bonsai Empire. Bonsai Empire did a thing on it when my trees were uh, at a retrospective show this past summer at the Pacific right. Bonsai Museum. Yeah, yeah. Right. So they've got it, uh, Bonsai Empire has uh, some pictures. You can find it there. Very cool. I'll, I'll drop a link in the in the description yeah. for that. Awesome. Okay. Very Great. Good. <laughs> uh, but yeah. So tell us about being a curator over at the Pacific Bonsai Museum or formerly the Pacific Rim. Right. Um, well, I uh, uh, so my situation was that I uh, had been a percussionist at the New Orleans Symphony um, until they started having financial problems. And when I started seeing uh, the late paychecks and missed paychecks and so on, I didn't resign, but I took leave of absence, an extended leave of absence. And I was already teaching uh, part-time at Loyola University in the music department, and I was doing uh, pickup jobs, freelance jobs. But there was a very active bonsai community in in uh, New Orleans, and I had I had been at this for about seventeen years at that time, and was doing a lot of teaching and writing and so forth already. Mm. And so I started. Uh, I went into business uh, during my day job became taking uh, care, managing other people's collections, um, and so I was uh, able to find a good amount of work. Uh, doing that. And um, that that went on for a couple of years. And then one day I saw a flyer that came out from the American Bonsai Society with an ad for the curator job um, out here in Washington State. Mm-hmm. And for me, it was a lark. I just said, hey, got nothing to lose. What the heck? And so yeah. I, just, I, sent, uh, I sent some material in. And um, to my surprise, I got a phone call and got a phone interview. Um, And after that, uh, they flew three other people and myself out there uh, for interviews on site. And when I and and so then I was uh, I thought very fortunate to get that position. And when I started, the facility was still under construction. so all of the, the walls, the alcoves that you see, there were only concrete foundations. Uh, and so the, uh, the, the committee that, that was charged with uh, assembling a collection, uh, which had been active since the previous May, I came out in August, uh, they had assembled 52 trees that lived in a, a, a chain link fence enclosure at the technology center. And so, um, Initially, I cared for the trees there until in October the the, uh, the collection opened, mm. and we we moved everything over to the display area. But there was there was nothing there. So part of my job was we didn't even know. For instance, we didn't know if it was going to be open all year or just part of the year. Mm-hmm. Um, there there was no there wasn't really a plan. <laughs> right. This this was Warehouser Company did this 
um, because it was a way to recognize their trade relationships with their Asian partners, because they did a lot of business in Asia, um, especially in Japan, but in China and other places too. And as a way of saying, we recognize some aspect of your art and culture that also has to do with trees, which is what we're involved in. Right. So that was part of it. Part of it was to have um, uh, a cultural resource for the people of the community. It was always intended to be free. It was never mm. intended to have an admission fee. And um, and and so it was put together with those concepts in place, but but not a real concept of 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 what it takes to actually maintain a bonsai collection. So, for instance, there was a couple years. Well, we didn't have winter enclosures the first year. Winter, I made styrofoam boxes that I put over the trees, mm. put them on the ground, and, <laughs> and by the second year, we had the the winter enclosures that you see now in pictures. Um, we built um, a growing area, a reserve area with a with a shade structure and two greenhouses and so forth and, and built a potting shed and, and so on. Those all came after. So part of the early years was actually not only caring for the trees, um, but actually creating the necessary infrastructure uh to have uh, a viable bonsai collection and a public facility like that so that that consumed a lot of time and then mm. uh then i set about building the collection by adding to it and part of what i uh, chose to do was to go to Originally, the the only non-U.S. trees there were there were Japanese trees that had come to us through U.S. owners, not directly mm -hmm. from Japan. But mm -hmm. I set about getting trees from Japan and directly from mainland China, not just Taiwan. We had Taiwanese trees, but from mainland China and from Korea. And so we actually part of what I wanted to do was actually represent the Pacific Rim, the, the countries of the Pacific Rim uh, with which we dealt and, and where bonsai was was important. So um, building the collection was uh, part of uh, some of the kind of middle years, I would say. Awesome. Um, I have a question about that, uh, David. I've been doing a little bit of maintenance at a very small kind of botanical garden uh, uh -huh. that has a small bonsai exhibit. And one of the things that they have difficulty with is what do you do? How do you keep trees in an exhibit on display while still doing the necessary maintenance and keeping them healthy? Like, do you cycle them out with other trees and have like an area where there's maybe trees that are in under maintenance? Yeah, well, the, the ideally you would have at least three times as many trees in the collection as there are on display at any one time. Very so good. if you have 50 trees on display, you want to have 150 trees. Gotcha. That sounds like a lot um, of fun. <laughs> um, yeah. Otherwise, what you have to do is to simply try to turn it into an educational opportunity mm -hmm. and show that tree with the work being done and say, mm -hmm. here's here's what you're seeing, here's what we're doing. Um, and here's why we're doing this. Um, this tree looks really overgrown right, and, yeah. and out of shape, but we're building energy 
Mm -hmm. uh, for next year at some point, you know, especially with junipers. Uh, um, well, especially with the junipers with expanded needles like the San Jose's and, and some of those things, you, you can't just keep pruning them back mm -hmm. to ideal all the time or eventually twigs just start to die. They just, they just, they, they give up. And mm -hmm. so at some point you've got to let these things run and just build up some energy so that you can come in and then, then you can, you, you sort of start over mm -hmm. to a certain extent. But if you don't let them, um, there are certain trees that, uh, and, and certain trees get sick. I mean, certain trees get disease problems. Uh, you're going to have trees that suffer from maybe an exceedingly hot uh, weather. We had what we call a heat dome here um, last summer where, that I've never seen in my whole 33 years here. We had our back patio was 107 degrees. We never, oh, wow. yeah, never, wow. never mm -hmm. saw that before, you know. And so um, I had some leaf burn. Luckily, that was the extent of it. Um, other people lost trees. And wow. um, so, you know, you, you get and, and I know at the Bonsai Museum, they had a little bit of damage on a couple of the trees just because uh, you can't control the heat. You know, right. in winter, you can put them into a a greenhouse if you have one which they do which i do mm. um but but um you can't do anything about the heat <laughs> no yeah it's so well, uh, shade house and you know but i mean you, there's not much you can do mm -mm. and mentioning the the heat stress i did see they had the i can't remember uh the exact species of beach i think it's a japanese beach oh there's uh, a japanese beach yeah it's a um uh fuji buna so yeah. it's from the, the foothills of mount fuji that one had to be uh potted into a wooden box i saw that recently from, yeah from yeah he, they, he, he, uh, aaron who is doing a fantastic job there by the way i have to say this i'm so pleased um with how the collection looks and mm -hmm. and what's happening um uh, and part of that is just strengthening the trees when the trees have had some really stressful uh, experiences and you say, whoa, I don't think, you know, I'm a little worried. I, I could lose branches. I, I, I just have to give them a little better environment for a while. So, mm -hmm. yeah. And, and Aaron was and, and he put those on display and it said, here they are. They're in a box because here's what we're doing. That's kind of like what I was talking about and saying. Yeah let that be seen let that be an educational moment yeah and that's, that's that that is okay. the art sorry evan i didn't mean that's to cut okay. you off nah that happens all the time <laughs> that that is the argument though that um some of the people who are maintaining the exhibit when i'm not there uh or not doing the seasonal work they basically say that you know people the the property wants the trees looking show ready all the time they want to have that display so the argument's always been like can we turn it into an educational opportunity and i think mm -hmm. i've always thought you know display it show people the reality you know don't sell yeah. them a bill of goods and then when they get into it you tell them the truth you know <laughs> yeah <laughs> so the, yeah, that's that's right it's it's like saying oh yeah you can grow this indoors right and then yeah. <laughs> you can't i mean maybe exactly. even if it's i don't know even a lot of tropicals don't fare well indoors you know if they're if they're looking for sun yeah no, it's never so, as good yeah uh but yeah at the 
specific bonsai museum during my visit, that was one of the things I'm glad, really glad you brought it up about saying how there's periods of time when the trees need relief or they're shown in different developmental stages. Yeah. I noticed that that when I was there and uh, I went during the, the World War II uh, oh. exhibit that was put on. That was a beautiful Fantastic. Fantastic. Yeah, very cool. When they, yeah. when they put the, the uh, Domoto maple in the wooden box to mock up, uh, what uh-huh. it would have been like waiting for its owners that that really connected with me. Uh, I think I'll always remember that because uh, that's that's the side of bone side that we don't get to see very often. And then um, there was there was a couple other trees there that were very interesting that I remember seeing, like you had mentioned different stages of development for that learning opportunity. There was there was a Yamadori that uh, Dan Robbins, Dan Robson or Dan Robinson had collected. Robinson. Yeah, Dan Robinson. Yeah, it just uh, I think it was a cedar and it was just hanging out. It was really shaggy. It was in a wooden box. And I was like, I've never seen this before. And a bones like collection just out on display. Yeah, know? I don't know that that's a permanent. Um, I'm not sure that's part of the permanent collection. I, I think it might have just been for the World War II. Sure. M- yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, but, uh, well, you know, there's another thing is is how you approach this. So, for instance, um, now that you brought Dan up, you know, Dan uh, relishes um, the idea of age in trees. Mm-hmm. I mean, he's, he, he calls 100-year-old trees baby trees. Right. Because <laughs> they're still, they're, you know, our, our 100-year-old Douglas fir or our, or our cedars, they still are, they're still cones. Right. <laughs> still, I mean, they're still they're still a pyramid, you know, with a point. <laughs> yeah. And, and and he calls those baby trees and he says, no, nah, it's not what he's interested in. He's interested in the 2000 year old trees, not the 100 year old trees. And mm-hmm. um, and and part of that is that he has. So, Michael, this is like a, a polar opposite approach where I've been out there and, and where he's got trees where he lost a branch and it's on display mm-hmm. and i said oh you know i probably would have taken that off display if it was at the museum and 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 he said you know what he said trees die he said nature this is what happens in nature <laughs> yeah. branches die trees die he tries he he through his carving and work tries to make trees look like they're in the process you know right. in, in this of advanced age and and um, so he he has a much more relaxed uh, view about what you can show, but that's that's particular style. That's the gnarly. That's the yeah. gnarly style, you know. So you if in a in if you're in a botanical garden where everything is pristine, I understand that they're going to want uh, every part of their garden to look pristine. But but then the reality has to be you're going to have to have enough trees to cycle. Right. Yeah. You know, going to have to have enough trees to cycle. So that's something that would be the hard truth that they would have to face if they, in fact, demand that. So uh, the other thing is that. Uh, when you have a multitude of people uh, and and many. Many bonsai collections are primarily volunteer run. Mm-hmm. Um, so, uh, in fact, down in Oakland, they've got a bonsai collection, a very good bonsai collection, the Lake Merritt. 
uh, collection that's all volunteer run, for instance. But what, what happens with that is you've got uh, numerous people putting their hands on a tree and, and making certain decisions about a tree. And um, it's very hard to, I don't want to use the word enforce, but it's very hard to, to lay out um, a design or, or a concept or an approach that everybody is going to use because right. everybody has their own idea, mm -hmm. uh, especially if they're experienced. You know, one of the one of the things I find in workshops, for instance, if I if I have volunteers in a workshop, assistance, you know, it's uh, one of the things that's really hard to get is somebody who will actually have the skill to really help the people with their trees but who isn't going to redesign the tree before the next time I get back. <laughs> right. Yeah. The, uh... because, because usually, you know, when people get to a certain um, stage of, of, uh, of accomplishment of skill, they start wanting, they, they have an idea. You can't help having an idea and say, right. well, yeah, that looks nice, but you know, I would probably just do this instead. <laughs> and so that happens with volunteers. Yeah. Um, I remember in the early days, I had a volunteer who tried to restyle the trees every time she came out. <laughs> and I had, to, <laughs> I had to really watch her, you know, so that's part of it. And that's part of the, the idea of, 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 of having volunteers who are wonderful and make no mistake. Uh, who are wonderful and essential, but um, uh, it's like a workforce that they're still, in a way, they're staff, they're volunteer right. staff, but they're still staff, and they need direction, and mm -hmm. they have to be people who are willing to accept direction. So um, it's funny that you. It's funny that you say that, Dave, because uh, I have a buddy studying in Japan, and one of the things he had mentioned was that. Uh, when he was applying for the apprenticeship, he was almost overlooked because of his age and experience. And they basically uh -huh. was told that they prefer people with no experience. Yeah. Uh, they they yeah. want blank people slate. blank slate. <laughs> they don't want to have to break down that swing. They don't want to have to, you know, refill your cup. You know, if your cup's already full, you can't learn anything else. So, it's, yeah. Uh, so I thought that was very interesting. Yeah, but I, I think it's very true. Very true. <laughs> yeah. I remember even my my days way back when, when I was teaching uh, percussion, um, I would get uh, freshmen coming in who had, who had studied with their band director or their teacher, whoever it was. And that was the only experience they had had in their musical life. Mm -hmm. with this one person and and therefore when all your information comes from one source you know they, they become a sort of a god right and and and, and then it was, sometimes it would be very difficult with some people to say you know there's another way of doing this um and they, and they would be no if it's not the way my teacher did it it's wrong Right. There's not just two ways of doing it <laughs> yeah. there are not two right ways of doing it <laughs> there's yeah there's the right way and then there's the wrong way, you know? And so that kind of thing, as you mentioned, uh, like with the Japanese professionals, mm -hmm. I absolutely understand that. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. 
I get it. <laughs> I do. I do. I understand that. <laughs> so having curated over at the uh at the Pacific Rim or uh Pacific Bonsai Museum over time, well, uh, one of the questions we had prepared for you was how do you think your practice has changed? before and then through how do you approach trees now you feel like that's changed a significant amount um i know it's a broad question well i think i think there's there's uh um there's absolutely a way uh, that it's changed so first of all um my bonsai education was in fact uh a lot of it came after I got that job because then I started going to Japan and uh, and um, so I would say number one that uh, I one of the things that's that's really important that that changes you is to see really professional work. If 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 all you've ever done is be in a bonsai club with fellow bonsai club members, and uh, of course now the, the the internet has changed everything, uh, because now you do see everything. But it used to be that, especially if you were if you if you didn't get to go to Japan, let's say and see absolutely top quality professional work. You just wouldn't have an idea of what of what that could look like, what that could be. What could it, what could this bonsai be? Your mm -hmm. your image would always be that it would be something with a 1-inch diameter trunk that you got at a nursery um in a 1-gallon pot. Mm -hmm. Um or something like that, you know. And it it wasn't until now there are so many bonsai professionals in the United States um, who have either studied in Japan or have studied with other bonsai professionals here who have studied in Japan um, and who have the advantage of being able to travel and see what's being done internationally. Uh, and and it changes your perspective on what bonsai can and should be. Uh, the other thing is working uh, with very good quality big material. Hmm. Is even nowadays what I what I have in my collection I call my backyard bonsai. These are my these are my hobby trees. A lot of these <laughs> trees from from new orleans still you know right. these are my, these are my favorite kinds. some of these i even have in fact one of my trees uh, i just posted on my facebook page a few weeks ago a little uh, mugo pine uh, mm -hmm. that i in fact bought at a hardware store for 250. <laughs> it wasn't <laughs> a gallon pot you know and um so uh yeah one one of the things it's it's like um um where where you go and you really see professional work and you start to understand uh what your criteria should be or what your image should be that makes mm. a big difference yeah absolutely Excellent. um yeah. go ahead mike oh yeah so is there a tree that you happen to have an affinity for some material that would happen to be your favorite 
Um, hmm. I know that's that's always tough. It'd be tough for me to narrow it down, but yeah. <laughs> you know, I have to say, uh, even though we're sort of at the northern edge of of uh, of their range. <laughs> Or what they're like. I really like black pines. Yeah. Mm, I really okay. like, I love black pines. Me too. And they're so frustrating because year to year, our weather patterns are so different that, you, you, I mean, uh, you know, the candle cutting and the, the regrowth mm-hmm. uh, is, is wildly inconsistent from year to year because mm-hmm. um, one summer will have no spring at all. And cold nights throughout the summer it never you know every overnight low in in july is in the 50s low 50s oh, right wow and then then another year will spring will start in in april and mm. you know we'll hit 90 degrees eight times or something during the year and and uh, it'll be sunny and and then the growth is much faster and so if you're shooting as in japan where it's much more um consistent you know you 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 know you know if you go in there in the first week in july and you cut the candles you know what to expect when and and so on so for us uh you know i at least for me i never know what to expect um but i still love black pines the other one that i really enjoy working with because they're so adaptable and because they'll take any amount of abuse (laughs) I guess um, Chinese elms. Oh yeah, oh yeah. Chinese elms. I yeah, mean, heck yeah. yeah. I think that's a really um, underutilized species for sure. A, humble, and I would Chinese love, elm. I would love as one of my favorites would be Shimpaku, except that um, I had uh, twig blight introduced into my environment oh. several years ago, and so I have to really struggle with the junipers that have oppressed foliage. Yeah. Um, so, so for instance, uh, things like procumbens, or like I mentioned earlier, uh, with the expanded foliage, like the the procumbens or the San Jose's or something like that, they're not bothered. But um, Rocky Mountain junipers get hit really hard. Sierra mm-hmm. junipers get hit. Chimpacas get hit not as bad, but. Um, so in some cases, uh, there are many people right in my immediate area who, who have not had it introduced and, and who, who grow, are very successful growing them. But they're beautiful trees, and I would love to. Um, my wish yeah. list would be that I could uh, count on uh, right. not spending most of my time with my junipers trying to keep it alive. Yeah, that's that's kind of our problem down here in Florida with, you know, like what you said, similar to black pine issues is we never know when we're going to get our first frost. Uh-huh. If we if we even get a frost. If so when Yeah. So when do you yeah. start your decandling? And uh, and then with the junipers, you know, we tend to be a very moist, humid climate and uh-huh. those very dense junipers, you know, they tend to suffer a lot of fungus issues. Oh, so, yeah. 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 So, yeah. So it's been a struggle. Uh, to grow those, but still, still love them. But when I, when I advise people uh, who are starting out and they ask me, what kind of tree should I get? The two trees that I recommend most often are Shimpaku and Chinese elms. Yeah. They, they, Mm -hmm. Shimpaku, they don't care how cold it gets. It seems Mm -hmm. they don't seem to care how hot it gets. They they withstand drought. 
they can take shade as well as sun, not deep shade, but no. they, 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 they can take a wide range of light conditions. They can take a wide range of temperature conditions, a wide range of moisture conditions. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, those are those are two species that I that I, uh, as I said, I recommend for beginners because the foliage is naturally small and uh, except for me, <laughs> I mean, you, you know, most people have have a hard time killing them. Right. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> it's just important for somebody getting started, you know, not, yes, not yes. to get discouraged, to work with something that won't get them discouraged. Absolutely. Um, speaking of uh, beginners material that we you just mentioned, uh, one of the questions we had for you is, what's your best advice you could give to somebody who is a fresh beginner in bonsai? Just they're they're looking at material now and they're considering. You mean uh, the, uh, the advice you're asking me about is how to select material? Is that? What oh you're no, asking? no. I meant uh, what do you what what restate so, the question. So they're standing at the forefront of bonsai. They're about to get into it. What's the best advice, your best wisdom you think you could give somebody that's getting into bonsai? Okay. Um, so first of all, uh, bonsai, your your medium as a sculptor, uh, your medium as a living plant. And so your first job is to keep it alive. Mm-hmm. So the first job you have is to uh find out what it is so many people show up uh, with a bonsai or used to show up when i was at the museum and i was giving these weekend demonstrations and they come in uh or or i'll get phone calls oh, i've got this little bonsai and i think it might be sick well what is it oh i don't know <laughs> um yeah yeah they don't know what it is uh they have no idea how to care for it so i think the first thing i would impress on them is that Okay, you've got a living thing in your care. This is never going to be a good, uh, it's never going to be a bonsai, let alone anything beautiful, um, yeah. if it's not healthy. If you don't know, if, it, if the horticulture has to come before the art. Yep. It's yeah. got to come before the art. you got to know how to keep it alive. You've got to know how to keep it healthy. Um, and once you know what you've got, uh, once you know what your conditions are, um, once you know, uh, have some idea of, of of how to care for this thing, uh, then you can start talking about, okay, now here's how I think I'd like to design it. And then we can start talking about design issues and what you should know about um, mm-hmm. how to get started in design. but. It really has to start with with uh, the horticultural aspect of it. it. Just it's 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 like uh, it's like a sculptor, and uh, he said, "I'm going to make a sculpture," and um, I couldn't get any marble, uh, but I did get a big chunk of slate, and so <laughs> I'm, I'm going to carve. I'm going to get my hammer and chisel out and carve this piece of slate, you know, and, and yeah. the first wrap and, and then the big chunks slides off of it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's all in layers and it just you know, crumbles. Yeah. You Cause know, they didn't know any better, you know, right. or, or, yeah. or whatever. And, and um, 
So it's the same thing. I always talk about bonsai as an art, and I always talk about bonsai people as being sculptors mm-hmm. and bonsai as being sculpture, except that the medium is living, as as we all know. Um, and, but a lot of a lot of people who are starting out um, don't don't they don't they don't differentiate them from house plants. And so that's the horticultural aspect of it to impress on them. Okay, this is actually a tree. Yeah. <laughs> it's it's really not plant. a house plant. And um, some people try to grow them that way. Some people do have success that way, but mm-hmm. yeah. your odds of success are a lot better if you don't treat it like a house plant. <laughs> so for sure. It's it's really great advice on that. Uh definitely horticulture first. Uh, we're nearing the end of our show here, uh, but before we sign off, we'd like to talk about the bonsai word of the week. And me and Mike have chosen takigari. Tachiagari. Tachiagari. I'm I'm the, the one of the things here with our show is I'm the best at pronouncing things. So if you can't tell, but yeah, tachiagari. Uh, and we like to do. We're going to define the word, talk about it for a couple of sec for, for a couple of minutes, and uh, so everybody can learn some new uh, bonsai terminology. I know you said earlier. Uh, don't worry too much about the terminology and bonsai, but that's one of the things we talk about uh, here. Every sure, week. And, yeah. and it's good. And, and so many times the Japanese terms are just easier. They'll have yeah. one word instead of it, instead of a oh, dead branch that the, on which the bark has come off, and, and you know, <laughs> right, I mean, right. <laughs> they've got three letters that that say it right. So, yes. Yeah. Awesome. So. What is tachiagari then? How do we define that? Well, the 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 area of the trunk between the root base and the first branch, mm-hmm. uh, yeah. typically, and um, so the question is what what's important about that? And yeah, the importance of of the tachiagari is in the first place it defines the style of the tree. Um, whether that is uh, an erect vertical uh, movement, whether it is, um, um, you know, a slanting movement, whether it already has a curve in it, um, y- you know, whether whether it tapers well. Um, mm-hmm. So that that distance is really to me it's what defines the style of the tree as soon as you if you're picking out a piece of material or whatever you if 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 there's something in the ground uh, and you're collecting very possibly you don't see the rootage because there's a layer of duff or or organic matter or debris or something on the ground around it if you're in a nursery it's it's in it's in a pot and there's stuff mm-hmm. around. You don't really see the root base at first. The yep. first thing that you see um, is that trunk as it emerges from the earth um, mm-hmm. until the branch structure begins, right? And mm-hmm. so um, that's really that's where you start. That's where you say, "Oh, I think I can use that," or "That looks interesting. I think this bears further inspection." Um, yeah. Yeah. So uh, and in terms of if you're if you're judging an exhibit, for instance, um, the length of the Tachigari has a lot to do with the balance of the tree. So 
So, for instance, balance has a lot of different uh, characteristics, right? So one thing can be horizontal balance. We're, we're balancing from left to right. Uh, balance in, in Japanese, in the Japanese professionals, when you talk about balance, you're almost always talking about areas of density mm-hmm. and whether mm-hmm. they balance. But there's also balance between the bottom of the tree and the top of the tree. And yeah. so, so if the tachigari, let's say, is too tall and you end up having one half trunk and one half uh, crown, Sometimes that that throws your proportion off a little bit. It can throw your balance off a little bit. Um, so not only the thickness, the thickness is related to age. Uh, the direction is related to the style of the tree. The length of it is related to balance of the tree. So in other words, that that one piece, that one area is sort of what you focus on first. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, learning about the the tachigari is something that has changed my perspective on uh, approaching material to begin design on on you know everything that I, I look at now. So I'm really glad that I had learned that that word earlier on. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, it uh, it definitely helps. But uh, yeah, well, but yeah, the, yeah. Oh, sorry. Oh, I was just gonna uh, I was gonna wrap us up here right at the uh, hour mark. But uh, right. yeah, before we go, uh, was there any? Closing statements you'd like to say, Dave, or uh, I know it from Mr. David to grow out to Dave now. <laughs> but uh, yeah, before we let you go, is there any closing statements? Well, I, you know, if, if I get started, I'll just talk forever. So I shouldn't do that. Um, <laughs> but no, what I what I think what I think is important is that um, you guys and many others are doing a fantastic job of educating the public of putting information out there, both in terms of images and um, things that you have to say, information, uh, things that, uh, whether it's about technique, whether it's about leaning on the experience of other people, like something like this, where you interview others, uh, you're you're doing a job in in educating uh, the bonsai community and, and raising the quality of bonsai art. And so, I guess the last thing I'd say is my hat's off to you guys. Uh, and thank you, Dave. I think you're thank you so much. <laughs> thank yeah. you very much. And thank yeah. you very much for joining us today. Yeah, it's yeah. my pleasure. It was my pleasure. Thank you. Thank yes, sir. Great. Take care. Yeah, you too, Dave. Take care. Bye-bye, Dave. Bye.